Well, Merry Christmas. Good to see you this evening. I want to speak to you tonight for just a few minutes from the book of Philippians, chapter 2. I brought the house lights if you'd like to look along in a Bible there. You're welcome to. We've got a few Bibles in front of you. It's going to be on page 980. You can just listen if you'd like. I love Christmas hymns. I'm honestly not sure why it is that we sing them only once a year. Perhaps those who are listening to Christmas music before Thanksgiving are on to something because these songs are, are really just too good, I think, to only sing during the Christmas season. And the reason that I love them so much, I think, is really twofold. Um, one reason is because of the nostalgic element of these songs, if you know what I mean. Singing Christmas hymns is a way of, at least for me it is, bringing back sentimental feelings of past Christmases, Christmases from my childhood and cherished memories that I have and maybe you as well. So there, there's something quite memorable, something quite nostalgic about some of these Christmas hymns. But the other reason that I love singing them is, more importantly, because of the rich doctrinal truths captured and contained in these lyrics. Much of the, the deep theological truths that we treasure so much as Christians are encapsulated in these Christmas hymns. Take, for example, one we just sung a moment ago, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Uh, do, do you, did you notice some of the rich content in these songs, in these lyrics? For example, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconcile. Revealed in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Or, mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Church, do you realize what we've just sung there in those lyrics together? And it would, this would be just one example of very well-known, very loved, very treasured Christmas hymns. And there are many others with just as much rich biblical truth. But perhaps... Perhaps a Christmas hymn that you might not expect, one that you, you might not even realize to be a Christmas hymn with lyrics just as rich, just as profound, is found here in Philippians chapter 2. In fact, there are many New Testament scholars who believe that these words in verses 5 to 11 here are a hymn that was actually sung by the early church. Now, it's quite possible that the Apostle Paul had actually penned these words himself, they're original to him, but some have suggested, and it's, it's just as likely, that these were actually, Paul quoting here, an early church hymn that they would have sung, and that God saw fit then to include this in inspired scripture. But whatever the case may be, it appears that we have here, at least it seems, a hymn. And not just any hymn, a Christmas hymn. Verses 5 to 11, they recount for us here the, the Christmas story. It's really what we're celebrating here tonight. In fact, these verses, they recount for us the story of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. They, they tell us of his incarnation, tell us of his birth, tell us of his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. And so, in essence, the, these verses, they, they really are telling us, friends, the Christmas story, gospel story. And so as we have just now sung these glorious Christmas hymns together, I, I want to now just let Philippians chapter 2 sing for us the Christmas story once again. Look there in verse 5, if you've got a Bible open, chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes, 
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of God. Well, as you notice here, like any good song, these verses, they have a lyrical quality to them. There's something, there's something quite poetic here, if you notice in these verses. And as, I, as I said, these, these seven verses, they really are the Christmas story. There, there's a certain flow, there's a certain progression, if you notice here in these lyrics. And so, notice this progression here with me for just a moment. Notice there in verses 5 to 7, we see Christ's humble incarnation. And then in verse 8, notice we see that this humility, it comes to a climax there in his death on a cross. And then finally in verses 9 to 11, we see that this unparalleled act of humility has led now to his highest exaltation. So so notice the progression there from high to low back to high. This truly is the gospel in seven verses. In fact, these verses, they paint for us just this beautiful verbal picture of the story of Christmas. And so just notice this flow, this progression with me here in just three very distinct and yet very important movements. Movement number one, notice there, we see first Christ's incarnation. His incarnation. In verse five, Paul, he gives us here, notice, the mindset of Jesus. Have you ever wondered what Christmas was like through the eyes of Jesus? How how he viewed Christmas? Well, wonder no more because in verse 5, Paul tells us exactly what was going on in the mind of the eternal Son of God prior to his incarnation, prior to Christmas. And that mindset, I think really you could summarize in just one word here. Really one word could summarize these verses and it's the word humility. Humility. Look there, verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. So, Paul wants us to think here in the same way that Christ thought prior to his incarnation. And what is it that characterized this mindset? Well, Paul says it's humility. Humility. And Paul shows us here, notice this unparalleled act of humility by Describing for us, first, the the unique identity of this one, this baby, who was born in Bethlehem. Look there again, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse 6, we see here, the unique identity of the Son of God prior to His incarnation. Now, you, you've heard me say that word several times already, the, the incarnation. Incarnation, what does, that, what does that mean? Well, incarnation, incarnate, it means in flesh. It means in flesh. So, 
Christ's incarnation means Christ in flesh. But before that, before becoming man, before taking on flesh, notice Paul, he describes for us here who Jesus was prior to all of that. He describes for us here actually his unique identity. Verse 6, look what he says. Though he was in the form of God. Friend, do not think for one second that this baby born in Bethlehem a little over 2,000 years ago, that Jesus came into existence at that moment. No. In reality, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, Paul is saying for us here, has always existed. The early church theologian Athanasius, he said it like this. He said, there was never a time when Christ was not. Meaning he is eternal. He he has always existed, Paul says here. Jesus, the, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, he has always been. He has always existed. And Paul says he has always existed, verse 6, in the form of God. Now what does that mean? What does that mean in the form of God? Well, it means that he possesses the very nature of God himself. In other words, Jesus is God. It's not as if Christ simply looked like God, took on some of the attributes of God. No, no, that's what we might think of when we hear that word form, the form of God. But no, instead what Paul means here is that he is the God. All that God is, Christ is And therefore, Paul says in verse 6, he is equal with God. He is equal to God himself. Listen, prior prior to Christmas, prior to, to creation, prior to history as we know it, before even the world began, before time, before space, before matter, before anything was, Paul says, Christ was. From all eternity past, existing, he says, in the form of God, possessing the very nature of God himself. Which makes then what Paul says next, friends, unfathomable. Look there, verse 6. Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse 7. But emptied himself. So notice what this uncreated, eternal, equally divine Son of God did. Or better yet, first notice what he did not do. Verse 6. He did not, notice, count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now in my home right now, with my four children, some of them are having a hard time with grasping. It's mine. No, it's mine. No, it's mine. Right? Clutching tightly, white-knuckled to that treasured toy. Well, really, it's not even a treasured toy until someone else wants it, right? But Jesus, the eternal Son of God, Paul says he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, he willingly, voluntarily, selflessly, humbly loosened his grip on his divine rights as God. 
But instead, in verse 7, notice what he did do, Paul says, verse 7, but emptied himself. Another translation says, he made himself nothing. So, rather than clinging to his divine rights, Paul says, instead, he, he emptied himself. He made himself nothing. Now, 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 what does that mean? Well, well, let me tell you first, friend, what it doesn't mean. Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that the Son of God emptied himself of his deity, that he emptied himself of his godness. This is not some kind of theological subtraction where he becomes less than God. No, that's not what Paul's saying. No, instead, it means that he divested, he deprived, he laid aside, he stripped off his divine position, his divine prerogatives, his divine prestige, his divine privileges. In verse 7, he emptied himself of those things. How? How did he do that? Well, Paul tells us, notice in verse 7, two ways he did this, two phrases to show how. How he did this, how he emptied himself. Well, look there. And really, they mean the same thing. In verse 7, he says, By taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. How did Christ empty himself of his divine rights? Verse 7, Paul says, the incarnation. He was born. God became man. This is God made low. Listen, this is not theological subtraction. No, actually what this is, this is theological addition. God added humanity to himself. You see, the only way for the Son of God to take the form of a servant, to, to really, the word means a slave, though he was in the form of God, Paul says, the only way he could take the form of a servant was to enter into this world and be born as a man. And therefore, the pre-incarnate Son of God divested himself of his position, not by subtracting deity, but actually by adding humanity and becoming the God-man. Fully God, fully man, God made flesh, God incarnate, God like us. And so, Paul describes here the descent of the Son of God, notice, to, to his lowest possible point. I don't know if it's still on TV, but there used to be a show called Undercover Boss. You ever seen the show? Undercover Boss. Where these, these owners, these presidents, these CEOs of major corporations, what they do is they disguise themselves as normal, everyday employees within their own companies. And there were times in watching that show where I, I thought to myself, do you have any idea who you're talking to? Do, do you know the power that this person has over you? If you only knew who this was. And friends, in, in a much, much greater way, as we look into that manger and we see that baby, it should cause us to stop and think, God made flesh. But just when you think this is the lowest possible point, it gets lower. It gets lower. In, in fact, in verse 8, Paul tells us 
why he became a man, why he emptied himself, why he took on flesh, human flesh. You see, prior to the incarnation, the the pre-incarnate Christ, he was immortal. And so, Christmas is really about the immortal God becoming mortal. Why? Well, notice the second movement there. And really, really it's the climax of these verses in verse 8. Look there. Not only Christ's incarnation, but Christ's crucifixion. Verse 8 shows us, as one commentator writes, the radical measure of Christ's humility. Another says in verse 8, now all has been given up. Nothing, he says, has been held back. Look there, verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In verse 8, just just notice here, notice the the stair step down. Do you see it? Notice the, the incredible downward descent of Christ's humility. Notice, notice what Paul says. He humbled himself by becoming a man. But not just a man, notice it gets lower. Look there, verse 8. By becoming an obedient man. Obedient and perfectly submissive to his Father's will. But then he gets lower. And not just an obedient man, but look, Paul says, obedient even to the point of death. Obedient to the nth degree. And then it gets even lower because he says it's not just any kind of death, but even death on a cross. So notice here, verse 8, this, this just downward trajectory. It's the downward descent of Christ's humility. Which means that This child in the manger, this baby who was born in Bethlehem, Paul is saying for us here in verse 8, he was born to die. The immortal must clothe himself with mortality. He must descend to the lowest possible point, to the grave, Paul says. In other words, Christmas, if you think about it, is really about death. You see, often when a baby's born, we think life, right? Life. Paul says, not this baby. Not this baby. When this baby was born, God wants you to think death. Death. He was born to die. In fact, there's something very important to the Christmas story, the Christmas message highlighted here in verse 8. Here's what it is. That his cradle actually points us to his cross. His cradle points us to his cross. And this is highlighted there in in, in three words he uses. Look there, verse 8. Three words. Obedient, death, cross. I think two things are highlighted there in those three words. Here's what's highlighted. His death was for the Father, but his death was for us. His death was for the Father, but his death was for us. His death was for the Father. Look there, verse 8. Obedient to the point of death. Obedient to whom? Obedient to his Father. It was the Father's plan to put the Son to death. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And Jesus 
notice, willingly submitted himself to the Father's plan. He humbly subjected himself to death in perfect obedience to the Father. Why? Why was it necessary for Christ to die? Why did God the Father send God the Son to die? Well, it's because, friend, in order for God to graciously forgive our sin, perfect justice must be served. God is a just judge, and he requires perfect obedience. And our sins, it deserves his holy condemnation. That's why in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the apostle Paul says that the wages of sin is death. What you and I have earned because of our sin against God is death. Both physical death in this life that we will experience and spiritual death forevermore in life to come in hell. That's what we have earned, Paul says, because of our sin. And so Christ came and was born and lived and died in order to satisfy the Father's holy justice against sin. He was obedient to his Father. But his death was not only for his Father, his death was also for us. It was substitutionary. Now where do we, where do we see that in verse 8? Where, where do we see ourselves here in verse 8? Look there. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There it is. On a cross. Death by crucifixion is, as you know, the most shameful way and cruel way to die. As one commentator writes, the cross was deemed an especially appropriate death for rebels and slaves because it was designed not just to kill, he says, but to shame. The victim was stripped down and nailed to the cross through the ankles and wrists. Death would come slowly by suffocation when the victim could no longer lift himself in order to take a breath. This excruciating pain and shame was common for all those who were crucified. And so not only, notice here this downward trajectory, not only did the Son of God humble himself by taking the form of a man, by, by clothing himself with flesh, but he went much further than that. He died the most shameful death imaginable on the cross as well. But listen, listen. What makes Jesus' death so unparalleled, what makes Jesus' death so unequaled is, friends, what the cross symbolizes, what the cross means. Do you know what the cross means? Do you know what it symbolizes? Here's what it symbolizes. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a cross. Cursed. And here, friends, this is where we see ourselves. You and I are seen here. The cross symbolizes the curse of God, the curse that we rightly deserve for our sins and that on the cross he suffered the wrath of God as our substitute and sacrifice for my sins. He bore the curse for us. He stood in my place. His death Paul says was substitutionary. And so listen, it's not his cradle, but his cross that is the ultimate measure of Jesus' humility. The one who deserved heaven took hell so that you and I who deserved hell might gain heaven. And this shows us the lengths to which he was willing to go, not only in obedience to his Father, but in love for us as well. 
It was the ultimate act of humility by the divine Son of God. It was the ultimate expression of his obedience to the Father. It was, friends, also the ultimate act of his love for us that he would descend to the very depths of hell for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And this is the good news of the gospel. It's the good news of Christmas. It's that for anyone who will come to this Jesus, who will receive this free gift of salvation, who will confess their sins, trust in Him alone to save you and reconcile you to God and believe that He came for exactly that reason, to bear your curse. The Bible says you'll receive forgiveness of sins. You'll receive the gift of eternal life. It's the good news of the gospel. He came to die. But there's just one more movement you need to see. Because it's not the end of the story. The final movement, movement number three, not only his incarnation and his crucifixion, but Paul says here, his exaltation. In verse nine, notice the abrupt shift now. Verse nine, therefore, therefore. So this is now God the Father's response to the Son's obedience. This is the Father's response to Christmas. This is the Father's response to Good Friday. This is the Father's response to Easter. Verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what's the Father's response to the son's obedience. Paul says, verse 9, God has now highly, he has highly exalted him. God not only raised him from the dead, Paul says, but he has also elevated him to the highest possible place in the universe. He has lifted Jesus to the place of supreme preeminence over all things. This is what the Father thinks of His Son. He has highly exalted Him. And, verse 9, He has bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. My wife and I can never agree on a name for children. But there's no denying this one's name. What is his name? Look there, verse 11. It is Lord. God has given him the title Lord, the very name of God Almighty himself. He is Lord of all. In fact, notice how far his lordship goes. Every knee, every tongue in heaven, on earth, under the earth, meaning whether it's seen or unseen, whether it's living or dead, whether it's, whether it's high or low, Jesus is, Paul says, Lord of all. And though he descended from the highest possible position to the lowest possible point, God has now vindicated him as the sovereign Lord of all. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And so, friends, how should you and I respond to this Christmas story, this Christmas hymn? Well, Paul says that we respond here with our knees and with our mouths. In other words, the only proper response to this child, 
who was born to die, who has been exalted over all, the only proper response, Paul says, is worship. It's to worship him. And the reality, friend, is that either you respond to him now in worship, before he comes again, or one day, Paul says, you will bow the knee in response to his lordship when you stand before him in judgment, but then it will be too late. But either way, this Jesus, he will have the last word because he is Lord of all. So respond to him today. Respond in worship to him. Let's pray. Father, we are reminded afresh this evening as we contemplate this child who was born in a manger. We contemplate the reality of the incarnation that the God-man, Jesus Christ, born in flesh, has condescended not only to take on humanity, but to die for sinners like us. Oh Lord, I pray that you would remind us afresh this evening of his glory. Remind us afresh of his majesty. Remind us afresh of our need for this baby. And help us to worship him by fixing our hearts and minds on him because he is worthy of praise and honor. And Lord, I pray if there's someone here this evening who has never responded to the lordship of Jesus, God, would you move in their heart tonight to bow the knee to this Savior, this Lord, this King, who is worthy of our worship and praise, the one who has stepped into this world. We pray all of this for his glory, for our good, in Jesus' name. Amen.